Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. As always, so much to talk about on the podcast devoted to the intersection of oil, diesel, and transportation. And we call it Drilling Deep because you can't have any of those things if you don't drill for it. We also have our guest of the week this time around. It's an old friend. Todd Fowler of KeyBank visits us twice a year to talk about the recently concluded earnings season. He's the chief transportation analyst over at KeyBank, and he's always got great insights. He's going to be here in a few minutes. I want to talk about diesel today from the perspective of the fact that it's not all one big country. The diesel supply situation is tight everywhere around the world right now, but there is nowhere that is tighter than the U.S. East Coast, and that is getting to be a problem. I don't want to throw too many numbers at you because they can be tough to follow while listening to a podcast, but here's what I can tell you. Inventories of ultra-low sulfur diesel on the U.S. East Coast right now are running at some of the lowest levels since tighter sulfur rules have fully kicked in. You can't go too far back and look at inventory data to compare because at a certain point, you're looking at years where ultra-low sulfur diesel wasn't that big a thing. Now it's pretty much the whole story. And I can tell you that inventories on the U.S. East Coast are down about 50% just since the start of December. I'm reminded of the scene in the movie Lost in America where the Albert Brooks character wanders down to the casino floor after waking up and finding his wife gone and learns that she's basically gambled away their entire life savings. He asks the croupier just how much she's lost, and the croupier says, she's very down. Brooks asks again and is told again, she's very, very down. I can tell you that on the U.S. East Coast, when it comes to diesel inventories, we are very, very down. The market is so broken that normal things aren't happening. For example, the physical market for diesel on the East Coast, the one where professional traders ply their trade, is about 60 cents more than the price in the Gulf Coast. That spread normally is less than 10 cents. So you'd think that traders would be lining up to move product to the East Coast, right? But the main pipeline that takes gasoline and diesel and other things from the Gulf to the East Coast is actually seeing less demand than usual. The pipeline is full, but it usually has to allocate space because demand for space exceeds supply. But the allocations now are less than usual because the product is just not there. There are reports of spot outages of diesel at truck stops. Love's told us that they have had some. An official with the the New Jersey Fuel Marketers Association said the same thing. They're small. They're no big deal yet. But when these things spin out of control, they do so very, very quickly. And at the end of that, if the market suddenly starts seeing pumps without a fuel signs on it, You just don't have the supply in tanks to ease the squeeze. As a friend of mine said, if you want to get diesel out of storage tanks right now, you're going to have to mop the walls and get it that way. The East Coast has also lost a lot of refining capacity over the past few years. That isn't helping. Also, diesel exports have been running at high levels in the past weeks, very high levels. But you just have to wonder if the market will eventually uh, pivot with those sorts of prices. If the East Coast market is that strong, that will probably discourage some of those exports and keep them here in the U.S. Certainly, the price is screaming out for that product to stay home. The key point here is that when inventories are this low and signs of decreased demand are relatively sparse, you need to start looking for outages and allocations. We've got the sort of setup where that could happen. Got tight supplies, decent demand, and as somebody said, there is no cavalry riding to the rescue. This coming week is going to be really key. Some refiners are talking about ramping up operations in the coming weeks. That may provide some relief, but we're on the precipice of a really challenging time on the East Coast in the next few weeks. 
If spot shortages start to develop and drivers understandably get spooked about being unable to get fuel, you've got some real problems in the entire economy. Challenging times, ladies and gentlemen. It is that time. It's been six months since we've had Todd Fowler of KeyBank on to talk about earnings. We have him on every other quarter to talk about what he saw in the earnings reports that have just come out. I guess they're pretty much all out by now, except maybe a few stragglers. Todd, Todd Fowler, welcome to Drilling Deep. Hey, John. Uh, it's great to be back. Thanks again for having me. So, you know, I get all of your reports, so I look at them. And I, I think what really struck me this time, uh, and maybe maybe though the, the changes are to come, but almost everybody had a good quarter, but you didn't upgrade anybody. And I just wonder if you feel that that's a function in part of uh, that, you know, the, 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 the strong market of the first quarter is all priced in and that it's kind of unrealistic to think that the market will continue and or that the price will continue to rise. So you've got a lot of stability in your ratings of companies. Why is that? <laughs> well, John, there's, there's a couple of things behind that. And first is, you know, when we get into quarterly earnings, you know, we kind of look at that as actually being the, the game versus practicing in advance. And so a lot of our ratings, we try and set up in advance for what we're going to see around the quarter. Uh, so we did make some ratings changes, you know, really going back into mid to late last year, we became a little bit more cautious on the truckload group. We felt that a lot of the strong fundamentals that we were seeing at that time uh, were going to be difficult to be sustained. And, and obviously, the market was a little bit stronger, longer than what we anticipated. But we did take a more cautious view at that point. Uh, and then very early this year, uh, we did upgrade um, CH Robinson on the brokerage side. And our view there was that they would benefit from seeing moderation in the spot market. So we really try to position some of our ratings in advance uh, of the quarter and, and then hope that some of those trends play out when we actually see the quarterly reports. So, how, I mean, how do you feel? You, you, you actually kept your ratings stable on most of these companies. So I gather you feel that that's been justified. Yeah. So, so what I would say is, again, you know, I mean, our, our view, you know, particularly on some of the truckload names, you know, going into the second half of 21, you know, we knew that at some point in you know, the market, you know, would start to show some signs of moderation. We were surprised at the strength of the market in the second half of last year and then really even in the first part of this year. Uh, but with some of the trends that we've been seeing more recently, and, and you're exactly right, I mean, the commentary around first quarter earnings was relatively positive, but there has been some indication uh, that the market has really come off of the really strong level that we saw, particularly last year and, and then uh, in the first part of the first quarter of this year. Uh, so, you know, kind of our more selective view with our with our outlook and our recommendations, you know, we have, uh, I'd say, maybe even a little bit greater conviction in that with some of the commentary that we heard during the first quarter earnings reports, as well as some of the data points we've been seeing. And then for, you know, pivoting towards the brokerage names, which can benefit a little bit in a more looser uh, capacity environment. And when spot rates moderate with some of the trends and commentary that we heard from C.H. Robinson, uh, we feel more confident in our ratings change that we made in upgrading that stock uh, very early here in 2022. Yeah, and when we go into the earnings season, of course, when you look at truckload carriers, you think about how is it on the roads? What are the, what's the rate per mile that they're going to get in the spot market and how that converts into the contract market? But also, you got to remember, these companies all have brokerage divisions. And if brokerage is getting a lot better in general, uh, even if they can have a, even if there's a fall off in some of their truckload activities, you can see a a really bountiful quarter or a couple of quarters uh, for their brokerage divisions that may offset that? Or, or are most of those groups just simply too small to have that much clout? 
You know, it, it really depends on the name. And, and so there's, you know, several names that have more diversified portfolios, right? And so we think about a name like Schneider National, where, you know, at this point, you know, around half, a little bit more than half or so of their operating income is coming from their trucking business. And, and even within their, their, you know, their truck segments, they've got a dedicated fleet and they've got, you know, an over the road, you know, regular route truckload fleet. Uh, but they've significantly diversified into, to your point, you know, logistics and brokerage offerings are doing more intermodal. So, you know, we see a much more diversified portfolio there. Um, and then there's a handful of other names that I would say are, are more concentrated within the truckload market. But, but even within those names, to your point, you know, some of the very near-term dynamics that we see in the spot market, you know, maybe don't translate into near-term earnings, but we think about what that's going to mean going forward. And, and then, John, I know that, you know, you, you saw this as we went through earnings as well. You know, a lot of the companies have been benefiting from the strength that we're seeing in the used equipment market. So as they're disposing of equipment, uh, as it gets towards the end of the useful life in their fleets, they've been recognizing some very strong gains on that equipment because they've taken more depreciation expense over that asset life. And then they're, they're able to sell it for a, a decent price in the market right now. So there's a, there's a lot of moving parts that kind of you know, impact you know, the reported earnings that we see on a quarterly basis. Um, but at the end of the day, from a sediment standpoint, I think how people view the stocks and what the stocks really react to um, is really what the core you know, driver for the business is. So overall economic demand, freight activity, and really to your point, you know, pricing within the market. Yeah, let's talk about that used, uh, the used equipment sales and the numbers. <laughs> Ryder is a company that I know you cover. I always do their earnings calls. Uh, they took a really big, I guess you could call it a write down or an adjustment a few years ago in the value of their uh, used inventory fleet. I hate to say they were wrong, but they were kind of wrong. <laughs> I mean, the valuations that they ultimately got on a lot of this equipment far, far exceeded what they had written it down to. Uh, and so that's all really positive in the long run. It really helps their bottom line. At a certain point, that will sort of fade away, I would gather. Um, what's the heck? I always felt what they did was a little complicated. So as, as a Wall Street analyst who follows them, talk about what they did, whether it was a, a wise move, even though their valuations were really kind of off, and uh, how much more longer do they benefit from that? Yeah, well, so it's a great point. And I think one of the things that, you know, uh, we sometimes, you know, uh, take for granted in kind of the whole earnings process is, you know, when companies are reporting earnings, they're making a lot of uh, estimates. And so, you know, Ryder in particular, but but really, you know, most of the companies that we cover, they're estimating what they think, you know, um, what uh, the useful life of an asset should be. So, so how much depreciation do they need to take? And and to come up with that number, they know what they paid for the asset at the beginning when they purchased it, but they're making an estimate for what they can sell it for uh, when they're going to dispose of it. And so, there's a lot of estimates that companies are are, are putting into place that kind of go through, you know, the earnings process. Um, and really, you know, in, you know, Ryder's defense, um, you know, they're making the best estimate that they can at the time with the information that they have. You know, there's a lot of accounting regulations behind that that they have to support and, and, and justify why they're, they're making the assumptions that they are. And so if you think about the volatility, John, that we've seen both in the freight markets and this translates over into the used truck market, I mean, it's been a roller coaster, right? And so, you know, Spot rates have been very weak and then very strong, and we're starting to see those tail off. We've seen the same thing where, I mean, basically, you know, used truck pricing right now is at levels that, you know, I don't think we've ever really seen when we think about it as a spread between new and used equipment pricing. And so, Ryder was making the best estimates they could at the time. Um, and, and really, you know, what we think about, you know, on the street side is kind of 
a, a normalized earnings level. So we know that there's going to be really strong periods, uh, which we've been in for the last couple of quarters. We know there's going to be very weak periods that we were in maybe in the second quarter of 20 or maybe going back into 2018 and 2019. And we try and think about as things normalize over the course of a cycle, what could those earnings look like? And, and that's sometimes the reason why you see you know, a name like Ryder puts up a very strong quarter. You know, They raise the guidance and the stock doesn't do as much because people have a view that that may or may not be sustainable going forward. Yeah, let's point out that Ryder did make those adjustments, I think, all the way back in 2020. So, you know, and, and I think it was pretty early in the year. So, you know, in the, in the first half of 2020, we really didn't know what sort of apocalypse was ahead of us. So they, you know, they made those numbers and then the market turned into a uh, turned into a bountiful market on used, used vehicle sales, as you pointed out, to kind of at record highs. Well, um, John, I'll, I'll jump in real quickly and I'll say it's always kind of really easy for us to to Monday morning quarterback or look back in, in hindsight and, you know, uh, um, if this wasn't a podcast, if it was a webcast, you could see that I'd be smiling a little bit from the standpoint that, um, you know, at the time when they were making those adjustments, people were questioning, you know, did they did they make uh, did they cut deep enough? Did they they take big enough write downs? And so, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, sometimes when we look back, we say, oh, you know, they took too much or or they didn't do enough at that point. Um, but again, you know, the companies are really trying to make the best estimates that they can at the, the time, and that can impact earnings from quarter to quarter. And, and we really try and you know, normalize and adjust for that over the longer run. Okay, let's talk about some companies other than that we don't really talk about that often. And I was looking at your comments on the hub group, they're intermodal. I'm wondering how much you think they benefit from high diesel prices. Just generally, rule of thumb is that you know, your fuel efficiency moving freight is a lot better on the rails than it is on the road. Uh, and right now, <laughs> you can't have a, I would think you couldn't have a better set of conditions for an intermodal company or an intermodal operation than you do with $6 plus diesel. How much are they <laughs> going to benefit from this? Yeah, look, I mean, so it's very difficult to put kind of a pinpoint specific number on it, but I think you've kind of caught all of the main drivers correct. And, and, and so we would say at a very high level, you know, when we think about, you know, the trade-offs between intermodal and, and over-the-road truck, you know, intermodal certainly presents a fuel savings, um, you know, to the shipping community, really from the standpoint that you're spreading out that fuel surcharge over a train of intermodal containers versus one truck. And so the intermodal fuel surcharge can be less than what it is in the full truckload market. So on a dollars basis, you know, the shipping community can can look at intermodal in a higher fuel environment and say, okay, there's there's true dollar savings that are happening if we're using intermodal relative to truck. And then as you also point out too, you know, intermodal becomes a substitute good for the truck market when truck capacity is tight. You know, people look for alternative modes and, and intermodal certainly checks the box and, and you know, can be a capacity outlet when there's tightness in, in, the, um, in the intermodal market. And so certainly all of those things are very much in play for, for Hub Group, as well as J.B. Hunt and Schneider and Knight and the other companies that have intermodal businesses. And that's really helping support, you know, overall demand. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's some, some puts and takes that, that, you know, work the other way. Um, rail service, you know, equipment turns have been impacted by some of the congestion and some of the labor availability. Um, so all the intermodal providers there haven't been able to turn their boxes as quickly, and that impacts uh, their available capacity and ultimately their volumes. Um, and then, John, as, as you know, and as the audience knows, I mean, there's this very fine line with fuel prices where obviously we can see some quote-unquote benefits where it might push some demand into one part of the market and, and maybe take it away from another part of the market. 
Um, but we also want to make sure that we're not seeing demand destruction uh, more broadly in the economy. And, and luckily, I don't. We haven't heard many indications of that yet. But obviously, in a sustained higher retail gas environment, that becomes one of the concerns just across the board for the group. Now, let's talk about diesel prices a little bit more. As we know, most of the uh, the big publicly traded truckload companies and and the LTL carriers. They have fuel surcharges, which do a pretty good job of pushing down those fuel costs onto shippers, as you kind of made a reference to before. But there are empty miles. Um, yep. Surcharge doesn't work perfectly. And yet they really didn't talk about fuel on these calls. I mean, I'm just wondering if they're not going to talk about fuel that much when it's over $6. What would really get them to view this as a significant issue? Yeah, well, so I, I think a couple of things, and, and I think you've captured it exactly right. I mean, you know, the, the the large, you know, fleets typically have very dynamic fuel surcharges in place. And, and this goes back in refining the fuel surcharge over many cycles as we've seen fuel prices, you know, move up and move down and really making sure that they're capturing um, the, the cost of, of fuel within their business on a real-time basis so that it does kind of wash out. It's, it's a natural hedge that's put in place. Um, you know, the other piece that happened when we, when we think about, and, and John, you know this just as well as anybody, you know, the movement in diesel prices that we saw during the first quarter really happened very late in the quarter. I mean, you know, um, uh, the conflict in Ukraine uh, started in mid-March, and that's really when we started to see diesel prices move up. Uh, so we were in a period where it was kind of a, you know, let's call it a two, maybe three-week type period of very elevated fuel late in the quarter um, and so, you know, the environment where we can really see a sustained fuel environment, which, you know, we've been moving through now here in the second quarter, you know, we could see more of an impact in that. And, and you know, it's not just, you know, fuel and empty miles. Um, it, it's also in uh, component costs, you know, tire costs, maintenance and those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, I think the, I think the, the end story on the fuel and, and kind of the $6 diesel where we're at right now is probably still being written. And I think luckily in one queue, because the environment was strong early in the quarter, we were still in a very positive pricing environment. Um, I think that that was one of the many factors, you know, in, in the, the first quarter earnings, but it wasn't the only factor. And that's probably why we didn't hear as much about it. Yeah, I, I listened to the Covenant call and uh, Joey Hogan, the president, did a whole, it was almost like a monologue about <laughs> the higher costs. And I thought that he really kind of summed up the CEO's view of the cost. And he, I don't, I guess he mentioned fueling, and I don't remember, but there were other things that really were more prominent in his review of all the higher costs uh, that they're facing. Uh, let's talk about a company, uh, let's talk about SIA on the LTL side. I, I listened to that call. I found what was interesting was uh, the CEO, um, whose name is escaping me now, help me there. Uh, Fritz Holdgrave. Okay. Um, was saying we did really good. We, we, we were terrific. We were well, but we really got to do better and uh, to meet our peers. And you figure that the peer he's talking about is, is Old Dominion because uh, Saya came in with an OR of 84.4. Old Dominion's OR, I think, was sub 75, correct? Yep. So, yep. so even though Saya went up 550 basis points in their operating ratio, I mean, if their target is Old Dominion, I mean, they, they, they got to squeeze out another 10, you know, thousand basis points out of their <laughs> OR. Is, is this possible or is, is Old Dominion just such a freak show in their efficiency that nobody can hope to, to match them? You know, look, John, it was a little bit like when I would bring my report card home from school and I thought that I had good grades, but, you know, my sister's report card was always better. And so, you know, it's kind of this this relative world and, and the, the comp group that we live in. And so, you know, size results, you know, with a, with a mid-80 OR, you know, is certainly, you know, commendable. And, and I think even if we were around the clock, you know, 
five years ago, you know, talking about a, a sub, sub, sub 90 OR, you know, in the first quarter for almost anybody in the LTL industry, you know, really would have been a gold star and, and at the front of the class. But to your point, you know, Old Dominion has been best in class within the LTL space from a margin perspective now for, you know, 10, maybe 15 plus years. And, you know, on one hand, um, you know, the, the comparison is difficult. But on the other hand, for everybody else in the group, it, it's something to be aspirational and to shoot for. And so from the investment community standpoint, there's a proof of concept that's out there. And we see an LTL carrier who can run with 25% operating margins. They can also grow their business uh, while they do that. So Old Dominion is this great balance of both top line growth and margin expansion. And probably one of the best things for the entire LTL industry is the way Old Dominion has done that is being very, very disciplined on price. So Old Dominion looks at what their cost inflation is. Um, they have very, you know, upfront conversations with their customers about that. They they need to raise price to cover their cost inflation, to invest in their business, to to meet the service levels. And really, what we're seeing is, you know, almost everybody else within the LTL industry realizing that that's a very successful um, playbook and really attempting to run it. So, um, you know, from Sia's standpoint, very strong quarter, one uh, Q. Obviously, not as strong as what what Old Dominion has, uh, but the glasses have view for for Sai and for a lot of the other LTLs is that there is proof of concept out there where you can run at a you know, 20% plus operating margin. Uh, so for, from Sai's standpoint, there's still a lot of runway in front of them. And from Old Dominion's standpoint, they keep on raising that bar. All right, we've only got a few minutes left. Who was your hidden gem? Who, who kind of really surprised you that maybe doesn't get talked about as much that you were really impressed with, with what they did and um, there's just not enough recognition of that? Yeah. So, so, you know, we got a couple of names that we would really kind of put into that category. You know, we talked earlier about Schneider National, you know, on the truckload side, you know, one of the things that we like about Schneider is they have diversified their portfolio. So in our mind, John, you know, they can continue to get painted with that truckload brush. There's concerns in the truckload market about where we're at from a cycle standpoint. But when we think about their business portfolio now being split between Intermodal, which has some more defensive characteristics, some of the, the secular growth trends that we talked about, and then the growth on the logistics offerings. You know, we think that they're not getting full credit uh, within their valuation for how their business has evolved um, over the last you know five plus years and how it looks going into the, you know the, the later part of this cycle versus other cycles. So, so that's a name that we really like. Um, and, and then looking you know, on the truckload side, you know, we we think about you know Night Night Swift. And we think that number one, the management team has done a fantastic job, you know, with with this legacy Swift business, you know, the margins that they're posting uh, um, with, with the with the Swift um, truckload fleet, you know, something that you know we didn't even fathom when they made the acquisition in 2017. They've moved that business up to being best in class from a margin performance standpoint. Uh, and then they're also, you know, very gradually, you know, the portfolio is still very heavily weighted towards the truckload side. Uh, but they're growing their intermodal franchise, they're growing their logistics franchise, and they're expanding into uh, the LTL market, both uh, through acquisitions as well as some organic growth. And when we look at the multiple on the stock, you know, the street's giving them very little credit for both what they've done with their earnings profile of Swift and also the, 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 um, the portfolio of the business. So those are two names where we understand you know, the prevalence of the cycle concern, um, but we think if they're able to demonstrate that earnings are less cyclical this cycle rather than prior, prior cycles, those would be our hidden gems, to use your term. All right, we're going to have you back in six months. Give, give <laughs> us a pr fearless prediction about how strong things will be in six months. Well, 
John. It's crazy. You know, the six months go by pretty quickly. And and six months ago, you know, we were expecting things to moderate and and you know the kind of the slowdown that we've seen here, uh, you know, late here in the or late in the first quarter, early second quarter, has been a lot faster than what we've expected. You know, as I look out over the next six months, you know, I think that we're probably still going to see this correction on the supply side. You know, inventories are are you know getting into better shape. The real question is going to be how the consumer holds up, um, you know, in, in this environment where we're seeing a lot of cost pressure, higher retail gas prices, higher interest rates, higher inflation, what that means for the housing market. So uh, our best case view would be that the consumer is very resilient. Um, they've got a lot of savings that they've built up over the last couple of years. They want to get out. They want to spend money on vacations and doing things in, in kind of a, a waning COVID environment. Um, and, and that could support, you know, maybe a little bit of a reacceleration off of the levels where we're at. Uh, the risk would be if the consumer pulls back in, becomes concerned about, you know, the higher cost inflation, uh, that we could see the slowdown, you know, really continue and persist into the back half of this year. All right. Well, six months does tend to go by very quickly. So we <laughs> will have you back and see how things will have turned out. Sounds good, John. Great to catch up. Thanks for having me again. So we want to thank Todd Fowler, who's with us twice a year always after the first quarter and the third quarter uh, to talk about how companies did, publicly traded companies did in that uh, in that quarter. So he'll be back again in November. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freight Waves. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms. I have been your host, John Kingston. And please join us again. Mm-hmm.